Welcome to the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series, exploring how data can help cities become more resilient, smart, and responsive to challenges. This series is brought to you jointly by Center for Applied Geomatics (CRDF) and by CoData, the Committee on Data of the International Science Council. Via this podcast series. we bring to you reflections on the interdisciplinary approaches and the innovative use of data taken by various cities offering examples of good practices and lessons learned hi this is shelly gandhi from cept research and development foundation today we bring to you an episode on data driven policy making for resilient built environments in this episode we have dr yash shukla Technical Director, Energy Systems at Center for Advanced Research in Building Science and Energy (CRDF) India, in a conversation with Jiling Lu, fourth-year PhD candidate in Climate Change and Sustainable Development Policies at the Institute of Social Science, University of Lisbon, also a visiting scholar at Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Institutional Analysis. in indiana university bloomington between 2019 2020 currently she is joining us from portugal i welcome you both on the podcast it's a pleasure to be in this podcast hi jiling how are you hi yash uh, i'm good thank you it's a great pleasure to be here jiling as you know resilience in built environment is very important in current context we know that the world is experiencing climate change like heat waves and natural calamities these impacts have made everyone realize the urgent need for bold and innovative climate strategies climate mitigation strategies cities all over the world now are working to devise effective policies to keep the residents healthy in both indoor as well as outdoor built environment i know you have been doing a lot of work in climate change and the built environment chilling ah uh, yes yash uh, my work in climate change in the built environment as mostly focused on the nature based solutions uh, for urban climate change adaptation for healthy cities which uh, i focus primarily on the uh, aspect of urban governance and institutional dynamics uh, yash and your research focuses on the indoor environment right What do you suggest about the impact of climate change on the indoor environment? Yes, so the climate change is likely to significantly impact the energy use of buildings, and as expected, it is going to be expected to increase significantly. So we have been working a lot on how to mitigate uh, the climate change impacts and how to develop these mitigation strategies. Mm-hmm. So uh, passive strategies is. also very important to keep the building thermally comfortable so we have been working on how to integrate that into building design mm-hmm. uh, we have also been looking at developing strategies to maintain indoor air quality inside the building and to keep occupants healthy and thermally comfortable mm-hmm. right all these research areas are so closely related to the impact of climate change on human health um would you like to share a bit more details about those those research yes yes so we have been looking at indoor quality and thermal comfort into many years now uh, and we have also been able to achieve good policy outcomes of that is an example mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. worked on a research project 
to develop an adaptive thermal comfort model for India. And that has been now adapted in different forums. Oh, wow. That sounds uh, really uh, fulfilling. So you mentioned about thermal comfort. Intuitively, it occurs to me that comfort is a rather subjective feeling, isn't it, to be measured? How, how do you approach thermal comfort? What are the common methods to study that? That's, that's a very interesting science, Jilin. Uh, as you know, thermal comfort is a, represents a state of mind on how comfortable you feel. And there are several mm -hmm. parameters that impact thermal comfort. Uh, so there are psychological factors that impact thermal comfort. There are environmental factors that impact thermal comfort. And of course, there are physiological factors that mm -hmm. uh, impact the perception of thermal comfort. Right. And so when we do this study, we have to understand uh, different aspects of how one goes and measure all these different aspects that impacts thermal comfort. Uh, we actually go on site and take various measurements of environmental conditions, and we find out about the background of occupants, where they have been living over the years to understand uh, their adaptability or where they have been growing up over the years, what are their expectations. And we also measure the prevalent conditions outdoors. And using all this data, then we understand what is the expected level of thermal comfort that occupants expect in building. That sounds like a really diverse approach. Thank you, Jiling. So you mentioned that your focus for an outdoor built environment is on the institutional dynamics of urban green spaces. What exactly is the institutional dynamics and where do you draw your data or case studies? Right. So uh, many literature about urban green spaces has been Uh, showing the benefits of, of urban green spaces from an ecology perspective, showing the kind of ecosystem services or performance they can do, contributing to urban biodiversity, cleaning air, water and soil quality, and in the interconnectivity of the urban ecosystem, etc. But this literature uh, has been uh, difficult to convince uh, cities or policymakers to, to take bold actions to promote more urban green spaces or more urban green infrastructure. And the reason is because of lacking the insights into the institutional dynamics. So my re research looks into that. Namely, I look at uh, stakeholders, uh, their interactions based on international agendas as well as uh, na national policy frameworks on, on environmental protection, on urban environmental quality, etc., uh, as well as uh, local development interests, local community interests, cultural preferences, etc. And I look at how they interact, if they negotiate, agree, disagree, collaborate, and how they deal with different interests and build trust in order to achieve a certain outcome of urban green infrastructure. This sounds really interesting, Jilin. So I'm curious to know what kind of methods do you use or what are the common methods used to study urban green infrastructure? So there are many common methods to study urban green infrastructure. So if for geographers, they are interested in looking at the vegetation cover. So they use GIS or remote sensing. And for economists, they are interested in the values of urban green spaces. For, for example, they can use 
hedonic pricing, which means uh, they look at the values of real estate properties and look at the changes in the values to, to get an indirect sense of how much the urban green infrastructure has contributed to that increase or decrease of housing value. And then there's also uh, agent-based modeling and surveys that sociologists like to use to understand, uh, for example, uh, urban residents' uh, preference in how to use, when they use, how do they approach urban green spaces. And furthermore, for my own research, I mainly use uh, in-depth interviews to key stakeholders and their representatives, for example, community representatives, uh, policymakers, urban planners, urban consultants, uh, company representatives, uh, to understand their interests and their preferences. And then I construct an institutional analysis, uh, and this is very much from a political science perspective. Very fascinating. Uh, it sounds like you are using more qualitative data. Well, in our research, we tend to do a lot more work with a lot more quality data. I wonder what do you think about the advantages and disadvantages for qualitative data? Uh, yes, that is a really good question. Indeed, I use more qualitative data in my research. There is this misperception often when people talk about data-driven policymaking as quantitative data. Although in many cases it is true, Quantitative data are also very important. Qualitative data can provide in-depth detail as it looks deeper than uh, analyzing uh, rankings and accountings uh, and by recording attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. It can create openness through encouraging people to expand their responses, which can open up new topic areas not initially considered by the researchers themselves. Uh, qualitative data also can stimulate people's individual experiences and, and lead to a more detailed picture about what people choose and why they choose and what do they feel and why do they feel about their, their actions and their environments. Great. I, I believe qualitative data is very, very important. I agree with some of the points that you talked about is applies to quantitative data as well. However, mm -hmm. what's different is that uh, quantitative data is very tangible and it's, it's easy to visualize and use very much proven statistical techniques to analyze the statistical data and come out with inferences. And I think that leads to a lot of misperception about qualitative data not being representative enough or harder to generalize. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that it could be an intuitive perception about qualitative data, yes. Uh, usually, if it is not a long-term and multiple institution uh, collaboration, a project that has qualitative data and qualitative data only could be seen as small, you know, but similar arguments about quantitative data could also be made, right? For example, uh, quantitative data could be limited uh, as they provide only numerical descriptions, but not uh, detailed narratives. And also, you know, it could be uh, structurally biased because all the questions and, and answers are preset by researchers. So I, I think the point really is, is not about which kind of data is better, but rather we need both quantitative and qualitative data and data sets generated in multiple, with multiple methods. 
in order to better understand the complex interaction between the people and the rapidly changing urban built environments. Absolutely, Jiling. And to remember that having data is not enough. Um, data has a life cycle from being collected, being translated into policy. If I talk about different uh, stages of that, you know, through analysis, the data becomes information, and then we use interpretation to convert it into knowledge. And then when we present that knowledge in certain form to the policymaker, policymakers, then only data can have a chance to be translated into policy and then to actions. If I take an example of adaptive thermal comfort model work that we did, uh, as I explained before, we went in the field and measured the expectations of the occupants. We measured their their votes and the environmental parameters. And from that measurement is what we derived was data. And that data is when we used then statistical tools to convert that data into an information to derive when 80 to 90% of the people feel comfortable at what is the temperature range, what is the environmental conditions under which they feel comfortable. Then we used a proven techniques uh, to come up with an adaptive thermal comfort model, which correlates the indoor conditions with the prevalent outdoor conditions. And that model provides that how with the outdoor change in outdoor conditions, the expectations of people also change indoors. And that becomes a knowledge. So adaptive model in general, uh, development of model, it converted that information into knowledge. And that uh, model also had to be put it in several forms. So you know how scientific studies uh, use data and provide a different kind of correlations and equations and regressions. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. to translate into policy, we actually had to simplify it in a form so that it becomes that knowledge becomes accessible by the policymakers and the end users. And that's when when we converted into that, the model got accepted by National Building Board, which is now one of the design methods to design a building right now. So that's, to me, is a very good example to show the complete life cycle of a data. Congratulations. Uh, on your research, being able to uh, go uh, be translated into policies already. Um, yes, uh, I could very much relate to you on uh, having to simplify research outcome into more direct and understandable message to present to policymakers. And and I completely would agree with you on the point about the, the data life cycle. It is so important to distinguish between data and all these other intermediate forms of, of data before it can become policies and actions to address climate change impact. And especially in today's world where we're also fascinated and also maybe overwhelmed by the potential of big data. And even when we manage to have data to go through its proper life cycle in order to inform policy, we still have other concerns too. For example, in my research, uh, I discovered that there are justice issues. Will the marginalized communities or low-income communities, will they have a chance to participate in the data collection as they are often the ones who are most suffering more from climate change impacts? And then there's also the issue of the accuracy or validity of data over time 
or uh, the interoperability of data between different data users or different sectors. That's a very relevant point, Jilin. And the same uh, principle applies to thermal comfort domain as well. So in thermal comfort domain, if I explain you, we have two different ways of studying thermal comfort. In one, we actually conduct a right now, right here surveys, which is what I explained before. But we also mm-hmm. need to more to understand thermal comfort better. We actually also have to conduct a longitudinal study where we take a small set of samples and study that data over a period of time in different climate zone. So if I give you an example of a net zero energy building that we have on our campus, mm-hmm. we have studied the comfort through almost last five years. We have understood how the comfort expectation has changed over time. Well, that sounds like a really sound approach to ensure data will be valid over time. And what kind of uh, policy impact will this thermal comfort model have or does it already have on the climate change situation in India? So uh, in our past studies, we have assessed, Jiling, that if all the buildings adapt adaptive thermal comfort model as opposed to a standard approach of designing air conditioning system at 22 or 23 degrees, then you can achieve almost 8 to 13% energy savings uh, in buildings. Uh, And if you convert that into a number, that means it's this adaptive comfort model has a potential of achieving 30 to 50 terawatt hours energy saving potential for our country. I also think, though, that we need a greater amount of research to understand the health benefits of using the adaptive thermal comfort model. Wow, that's fascinating. 8 to 13%, that is quite a lot of energy being saved. Thank you, Jiling. We definitely need to work on a few more areas to enhance data-driven policymaking. What about your research? Mm-hmm. What are the challenges you or your field of research are facing? So my research experience, making data publicly available is definitely one of them. As you probably know, there are a lot of um, concerns uh, to uh, whether policies should be published and when they should be published in order to achieve the best outcome. In terms of public expectation and also uh, public supervising or public opinions about these policies. So in many cases, a lot of the policies, they are only made public after certain projects are implemented. And then there's also another concern with qualitative data. They made it a point that we shouldn't make these research data public because, as you know, for interviews, a lot of the times the value of in-depth interviews lies in that it is spontaneous and unfiltered. So for all these kind of concerns, making qualitative data publicly available has always been a challenge for us researchers. And then I also think that if there are more qualitative data, that means if there are more residents, more policymakers, more stakeholder representatives are interviewed, we can measure their perceptions and preferences better. Absolutely. Maybe a more formal framework for participatory data collection and data sharing can be established. As you know, Mm -hmm. open science is a trend for the future of science, and uh, we would like to have a more comprehensive data sharing policy in place for open science. Mm -hmm. 
This has been an enriching conversation, Jiling. It's been a really enriching conversation. And I really learned a lot from you about quantitative data. And congratulations again on your success in forming policymakers using the thermal comfort model. Thank you, Yash and Jiling, for sharing your experiences and challenges on the importance of data in policymaking for climate change with specific reference to indoor and outdoor built environments. Thanks for listening to this episode from the Data for Resilient Cities podcast series. If you like our podcast and want to know more about the series, check out our website www.crdf.org and follow us on social media. Please leave a review and like and share wherever you listen to the podcast. Look out for the next episode and join us next time. 